even though they know Michael and they hear of him and they know they just sort of associate it with the best, they just didn't know how good. And going through it and hearing all these guys, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Greg Popovich, David Stern, even President Obama talk about Michael Jordan, it began to dawn on me that there is no next. There can't be. <laughs> this is the guy. There's never going to be another guy like this because not only who he was, but when he came along, he came along at the ideal time. It was like, not to make the comparison, but it was like Abraham Lincoln in our country. There was a lot of abolitionists, a lot of guy, people against slavery, but it had to be the right guy at the right time. And for basketball and the effect on the culture with the shoes and the style and everything, Jordan was the right guy at the right time. I always like to say that Michael got to play with me for a year at North Carolina. <laughs> I think it really helped him spectacular player from the beginning. You could see right away Jordan was going to be a big-time scorer. And showed what an impact he was going to have on the league. This is NB85, celebrating the 30-year anniversary of Michael Jordan's rookie season in the NBA. And now, your hosts, Adam Ryan and Aaron Steen. Aaron, welcome back for another round of NB85. How are you, mate? Well, considering who we had the chance to chat to recently and how beautifully it coincides with our MB85 podcast series, I'm rather jovial at the moment, mate. Understandable, mate. Now, we're recording this intro after the fact. If you're a regular listener to the show, welcome back. If you're new to the show, thanks for taking the time to tune in and have a listen. Here's some quick context. Whilst we did use some select audio of our conversation with Roosevelt Chapman, In episode one of the NB85 series, today is our first full-length guest interview. And as you alluded to, mate, we have the one and only Sam Smith on the show. It's Sam's second appearance on the podcast. He was a guest on In All Earnest way back in February of 2013. And visit inallearnest.com slash 11, that's the number 11, to hear that episode. If a book was ever made to satiate the fascination of basketball fans and particularly our very passionate podcast listeners it has to be sam's new release mate which is aptly titled there is no next nba legends on the legacy of michael jordan i took the time during the podcast to tell sam how much we appreciate his work and i'm sure that there is no next will be another sensational read that gives us an expanded knowledge of mj's rookie season which in my opinion is well overdue without any further ado on to the show. Basketball Hall of Famer, Sam Smith. Our guest today is a columnist for Bulls.com. He's a member of the Basketball Hall of Fame and author of New York Times best-selling book, The Jordan Rules. He's just released There Is No Next, NBA Legends on the Legacy of Michael Jordan. Sam Smith, welcome back to the show and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me. Glad to be there. Now we've got Aaron here as well, so we'll be switching between the two of us with a few questions about your book and look forward to speaking with you. Oh, double team. Yeah, I'm ready for a double team. Yeah, exactly right. You got to pass out of that? Well, perhaps. Depends on who you're passing to. Okay. It's early November in 2014 and you just recently released your book in late October. How have you found the reaction to the release of the book, Sam? Well, uh, pretty good. You, you know, as, a, as the author, you're not supposed to go around and solicit either praise or criticism, <laughs> I guess. Um, but I, I think it, it's, uh, if I have to say so myself. Uh, no, I think, I think it's a terrific a book for Bulls fans and, and Jordan fans because um, what I wanted to do is uh, sort of time it toward the 30th anniversary of uh, his first NBA game, which was October 26th. It was 84, you know, 84, 85 rookie season. Kind of a combined uh, narrative. 
You know, in writing the Jordan Rules, which was released in uh, 91, it was a diary of the first championship season, and it just, you know, turned out good timing. Um, they happened to win. Frankly, none of us uh, really thought they were going to win that season, including them. Uh, and they were hopeful, but, they, you know, they've been disappointed a lot. But, you know, in, in people sort of catching up with that book, This Generation, and mentioning it, that, you know, I realized, you know, if you're under 30, or you really didn't know who Jordan really was. Mm-hmm. And especially that climb, you know, in which he was really more spectacular. I mean, people remember all the great plays and shots and drama in the finals. But the era in the 80s when he just, I wouldn't say came out of nowhere, but, you know, was a guy averaging 17 points in college and came to be the dominant player in the NBA. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, Dominique Wilkins, Isaiah Thomas, whoever all recognized that this guy was a superior talent, MVP of the league at the same time he was defensive player of the year, scoring like no one ever had since Wilt. And uh, so I wanted to sort of get into a little more depth in that era of how he came along, you know, the sort of the build up to the title and kind of a combined narrative uh, oral history to all those people I mentioned about his influence on the game, and that's where the no next comes from. There can't be a next Jordan. I mean, you say, oh, well, Durant's the next, LeBron's the next, Kobe, whatever. His economic effect, his social effect, cultural, racial, everything, really, at least in our hemisphere or, or our continent, rivals only the likes of Babe Ruth or Muhammad Ali in the 20th century. Undoubtedly. And you're talking to an absolute perfect audience for this because the podcast listeners of this show, and in particular this NB85 podcast series that we're doing, are huge Jordan fans, and particularly of that era in general. So it's a really exciting opportunity for us to sort of pick your brain a little bit about the book itself. It's such a fantastic title as well, There Is No Next. How much thought went into that, or was it just something that popped into your mind during the research for the book? How did that come about? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because uh, I'm good at the writing part, I'm good at the... Uh the research part, actually, that I'm more reporter than anything, and the writing is comes harder for me. And the title is, you know, it's like the headline of a newspaper story when I worked for the Chicago Tribune. Whatever, you write the headline. I, I just wanted to do the story. That's all I cared about was the story. You know, writing, I always felt writing is, you know, storytelling. And so the Jordan Rules wasn't my title. Uh, the agent of, uh, for the book, Sherry Wank, she, she came up with the title, and you know, it turned out to be sort of iconic title. So when this book came up, and she's still my agent of these books, I said, well, you know, you hit a home run with that one, come up with a title. Yeah. And it really hadn't, and, and I'd finished the book and was turning it in, and going through it and writing it, that's what sort of came to me from talking to all these people. Reggie Miller, he said, these are the oral histories, the quotes about Mount Rushmore, you know, our famous uh, mountain in Dakota with the presidents, with Washington and Jefferson and Roosevelt. And, you know, Reggie Miller said, well, if there's a Mount Rushmore for sports, it's Muhammad Ali, it's Babe Ruth, and it's Michael Jordan. And he wasn't even sure he could come up with a fourth guy. And, and the other part was, I remember last season, recent seasons, I don't know what voice ESPN, if it's in Australia, but it's, you know, the dominant sports voice here. And when Kevin Durant was having a big season last season and had some run of like 25-point games, and they sort of were chronicling it like, like it was the build-up to, you know, Babe Ruth's home run record or something. And, you know, seven, 18 straight game with 25 points. And I was watching this thinking, Jordan always had 25 points. He had 35 points every game. What are they talking about? And so it, you know, it sort of occurred to me also that 
generation, even though they know Michael and they hear of him and they know they just sort of associated with the best, they just didn't know how good. And, you know, in going through it and hearing all these guys, Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Greg Popovich, David Stern, even President Obama talk about Michael Jordan, it began to dawn on me that there is no next. There can't be <laughs> This is the guy. There's never going to be another guy like this because not only who he was, but when he came along. He came along at the ideal time. It was like, not to make the comparison, but it was like Abraham Lincoln in our country. There was a lot of abolitionists, a lot of guy, people against slavery, but it had to be the right guy at the right time. And for basketball and the effect on the culture with the shoes and the style and everything, Jordan was the right guy at the right time. Fantastic to hear, and yeah, perfectly said as well. Now, just before I hand it over to Aaron, the book's part oral history, as you were talking about, and then also a part narrative. Had you always planned to release the book in that way? Uh, yes, I, I, I thought about it that way, and I started... Uh, I, when, when Jordan got inducted in the Hall of Fame, and it seemed like around five years ago or something, I went back and did a series of stories for the Bulls website, sort of uh, talking about each of his seasons. And that was sort of the... Uh, the germ where it sort of sprung from. And you know, I sort of always had it in the back of my mind about expanding that into a, a book. So when I started on it last beginning of last season, what I decided to do was make it in large part oral history rather than, you know, everyone always has done these books, including me, talked about Jordan. I thought, let the people who competed against him, who know him best, teammates, opponents, observers of the game, you know, Marv Albert, broadcast, whatever. There's just wide cross-section of people who were influenced him, ran across him, watched him, played against him. Um, let them talk about him. And going into it, last fall, I started doing the interviews, uh, uh, traveling around during the season, part with the Bulls, and then Cage Lang would take off and arrange some. But it, but it was really fun for me. I mean, I enjoyed that part the most uh, because... You know, it gave me the opportunity to sit down with, you know, Bird and Magic, Popovich, Dominique, all these guys, Isaiah Thomas, Joe Dumars, uh, Reggie Miller, um, you know, some old teammates, uh, Reggie Theus or Sidney Green, and talk about basketball and talk about Jordan and talk about that era. And I try to blend all that in, the history of the Bulls, history of the NBA, how we got to where we got and how Michael took it from there. Sounds fantastic, and uh, I've read a, an excerpt that was on the bulls.com website. We'll include a link to that in the show notes for this episode, so I'm really looking forward to buying the book as well and actually getting into it, and I'm sure that many people are going to really relish some of the stories that are put forward in the book. I might hand it over to Aaron at this stage. Aaron? Sam, as Adam is, as a 25-year-plus fan of the Chicago Bulls, the internet in 2014 for us is just incredible because the amount of new content that we get to see that we never saw back in the 80s and 90s, the new content that we get to see now is just like a dream come true for us. And even now in 2014, to have a book like yours released that will, again, shed some extra light on MJ's rookie season for us, it's just a, uh, a real treat, mate, and very, very appreciative of your work. Yeah, Thanks first... very much. Appreciate that, Adam feel like you'll enjoy it you know i know you guys are big fans i've heard your podcasts uh, with with other people before and, and you know i found them interesting myself so you know keep it up you spoke about the other uh, research that you did for the other book in speaking to the other likes of magic and bird and whatnot we relish the research that we do for our mb85 podcasts and uh to hear your excuse for research i think it makes ours look a little bit small and sad <laughs> 
The first question I wanted to ask you was two players that were on that 1985 Chicago team that were loaded with talent, but also unfortunately loaded with issues were Quinton Daly and Orlando Woolridge. Was it outwardly apparent that those two guys were having the issues that they were off the court? Um, it wasn't initially. I mean, Daly, we suspected that when he came because, you know, he had to get into the draft. He had to agree to plead on a uh, assault charge uh, on a student nurse. So um, without narrowing it down, I believe he was the only player in NBA history who was picketed on opening day by the National Organization for Women. Mm. Uh, <laughs> we wondered about him. Orlando was just a wonderful guy that just uh, sort of got caught up. That first Bulls team was a really... Uh, bad first it's kind of the first two teams was a bad group as far as it wasn't like they were bad people but uh there were probably half dozen guys who became heavy heavy drug users several who who went into uh rehab orlando did quentin did west matthews enos watley you know jordan who'd come from a very stable background Good family then in North Carolina, University of North Carolina, couldn't be better than that as far as uh, structure and uh, respecting your elders and the respect toward Dean Smith. And, and Michael always was somebody who had great respect toward his coaches, always got along with his coaches. And Kevin Lockery, the first one, Stan Allback, uh, Doug Collins, always supported his coaches, uh, you know, liked being coached, uh, you know, liked the structure of that, walked into this situation. And, and that was the all-star thing that first year. He, he wasn't trying to show anyone up. You know, he really came in wanting to be accepted because, you know, even though we, you know, we grew to see him as this dominant figure over everybody, you know, he's insecure like anyone else, you know, on the, on the court, confident and trash talking and all, but now taking a step into the NBA, you know, he didn't know. He wanted to be accepted. You know, Quentin had a lot of problems, but that, that season we didn't see him particularly uh, till the next, you know, the next couple of years. And the next season too, because when, George Gervin came in. That was his last season, and he had a serious drug problem also. So they were importing drug users. So that first season, I remember Michael saying that on the road he would walk past uh, teammates' rooms and you know smell marijuana. But no marijuana, we didn't. Whatever, big deal. All, you know, all of us used it in college. We didn't think it was a big deal. We didn't realize the serious drugs they were into. Speaking of Orlando Warriors, there just for a moment, Sam. In previous episodes of this series. Aaron and I have both talked about how athletically gifted Orlando was and perhaps how underappreciated or recognized he may have been throughout the 1980s based on circumstance largely. What's your take on how good of a player Orlando actually could have been above and beyond what he's, he's currently recognized as? Well, yeah, he got into, um, I mean, he got some, some bad teams, especially, you know, after the Bulls uh, let him go and tremendous athlete, um, would have been a great athlete in this era as well. Couldn't shoot the ball particularly, and you know, just a guy who got to the basket, um, tremendous long loping strides, dunker, you know, flashy player. Kind of started off on a bad foot with the Bulls because he he held out, missed training camp. I think he started the season late or something, and kind of got the community down on him. You know, holdouts not weren't that popular then for whatever you know they were being paid five hundred thousand fractions compared to what it's become. He was a great athlete. You know, he was one of these guys that you see today is, you know, great athlete, not necessarily a great basketball player. You know, wasn't wasn't as highly skilled with shots, but 
and he was very accepting of Michael. He liked Michael. Was, uh, Gwen Daly did not like Michael and uh, was openly critical of him because, uh, you know, obviously, for the obvious, main obvious reason is Quentin was the starting shooting guard and it was clear Michael was coming in to take that job. Just one more quick question before I hand it over to Aaron again. Uh, you mentioned the Chicago Bulls training camp there, which took place, I think, in late September of 1984 did you ever attend any of those days that they had that training camp and is that something that you might elaborate a bit further on in the book itself i didn't go into specific details of that camp i think i recall i think it was out in in the western suburbs in wheaton at a college and and they were even practicing kind of a small catholic school in chicago called angel guardian it was a miserable place cold i mean it was a locker room it was a girl's school. It was a girls' Catholic school, and the floor was concrete. The basketball court laid over it. That's why it's funny to hear players complain about, you know, playing back-to-back or, you know, playing too many minutes in this year. I mean, these guys are, are practicing every day in conditions that were, you know, miserable for physically for you, for your legs and for anything. But Michael, you know, instantly came in and was was a dominant player because, and, and the big thing was, because he wasn't a great shooter, uh, but I remember that camp and, and that early season and some of the preseason games, he was such a good ball handler. And he could just take the ball wherever he wanted and, and obviously was so quick and strong. But it was his ability to just take the ball wherever he wanted and make a play and get through traffic. And nobody could do that. Um, and certainly there was no one on the team uh, that could do that. And combine that with his, you know, attitude of play, it became pretty apparent. You know, the, the famous story uh, Rod Thorne tells, Rod, you know, would say it himself, you know, he messed up about six drafts in a row. And the first one wasn't his fault when he lost the coin flip for Magic Johnson and he got David Greenwood. But, you know, Quentin Daly, Orlando Rulwich, Sidney Green, uh, Ronnie Lester, uh, after literally on TV, we all saw him blow out his knee in the last game of the NCAA tournament. They still drafted him. And all lottery, you know, high high number one picks. And so he wasn't at the first day of uh, camp. Uh, the assistant coach uh, calls him, Bill Blair, and uh, says, uh, after the first day of camp, says, well, at least you didn't mess up this draft. Because <laughs> <laughs> now we finally got a guy. Yeah, that's fantastic. That leads me just nicely into my next question, Sam. You mentioned before about Jordan's impact on the rest of his team during his rookie season. MJ had a reputation of being hard on teammates. Did you ever see any instances of this at all during his rookie season? Or do you think it's just something that he grew into? Well, he, 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 was, he was trying, you know, to get along and be accepted. And, and he was a playful guy. I mean, Mike, Michael's whole thing always was games. Everything was games on the court, off the court. You know, we've heard the stories over the year, cards and ping pong. You know, Rod Higgins, he befriended Rod Higgins right away. And Rod was a terrific ping pong player. You know, so Michael bought a ping pong table, and I practiced constantly. You know, because couldn't bear being beaten by Rob. <laughs> played with him. You know, played that season, and ended up being dumped at the beginning of next season, so they could pick up George Gervin, who was, was part of the freeze out from the All Star game. So, you know, sort of beginning of all his feuds with management. I remember, and I had that that story in the book. Um, Rod Thorne was saying in his rookie season, it was you know maybe thirty games in or something. Jordan had a really good game you know, in the usual 38 or whatever. But the Bulls lose. Comes in the locker room afterwards and starts saying, well, tough game, Michael, but you play good. He says, Michael turned on him and said, you're going to get some goddamn players in here. (laughs) (laughs) So right away, he wasn't going to accept 
not winning. And it was a long way to winning with that team. You know, they, the team he joined, you know, the previous season, they, they'd won 27 games. And so they got up to 38 in the first season, which, you know, was a substantial increase, um, you know, 40% increase, but still not even a 500 team that first year because, you know, the league is loaded. He's playing in a conference, you know, with Bird on, on one team and Dominique on another and Isaiah Thomas, and probably that was the best year for talent in the NBA. And he's looking around, and they have a lot of first-round picks, but he's dominating them every day in practice. <laughs> Get me better players than this. He quickly became the alpha dog, obviously, uh, based on that story for sure. Right. Now, if my timeline's correct, it was March of 1985, and Jerry Reinsdorf took over as the owner of the Bulls, and shortly thereafter, Jerry Krause was named the VP of Basketball Operations. What are your memories of those franchise-defining events, Sam? Obviously, you know, ownership change. I mean, um, Rod Thorne got fired in that season. True. You know, when Jerry came in and Krause came in. Krause had been with the Bulls in the 70s and had been a scout and then, um, you know, had become an executive and, and ended up getting fired. They had a botched hiring of Ray Meyer, the legendary college coach who was coaching at DePaul, and he sort of botched that up. They ended up firing him. He went back to baseball. He'd been a baseball scout and was working for the White Sox. Jerry didn't even know who he was. He kind of bought the Bulls as, as sort of an investment to keep him in baseball or keep him in sports because the White Sox, after he bought him in 1981, the Chicago White Sox baseball team he bought, they started to lose money and the stadium needed to be replaced and they couldn't afford it. So he was afraid he was going to lose the White Sox. So he got involved in the, in the Bulls. I tell the stories in there. Uh, it's George Steinbrenner, who in the Yankees, was one of the seven all multimillionaire owners of the Bulls. Who And the Bulls, year after year after year, were losing a tremendous amount of money. So, you know, Jerry, in sort of chatting with Steinbrenner, said, you know, he'd be interested in taking over, but he just thought he's running it. And then Steinbrenner, you know, called all the other owners and said, well, we, we want to sell it. <laughs> so sort of Jerry said, uh, thought, well, he'll put together a group, buy it, and in case he loses the White Sox, at least he could stay involved in sports. You know, and so he's discussing this and crosses at this meeting of, his, of the baseball people as a scout and comes up with a plan about basketball, you know, Reinsdorf didn't even know he'd been involved with the Bulls previously and didn't know he was involved in basketball. And, you know, it sort of matched Reinsdorf being from New York. It matched his view of basketball, meaning, you know, let's get a, let's get a defensive oriented team, uh, players who share the ball. Of course, <laughs> Jordan's didn't exactly have that. It obviously became, you know, you were going to get a new coach immediately after the season. They let Lockery finish the season and, you know, came up with a new coach and a new general manager. And, you know, began the process. They identified pretty quickly, okay, we've got one guy on this team. We've got to tear it down and just start building around him. And, you know, it sort of became the, uh, the building plan for what became those championships. Thanks for your thoughts on that one. Aaron, you've got a question that you wanted to ask here, and it relates back to uh, our previous episode of this series where we were chatting about the misfortunes of Dave Corzine. One of the very apparent things, Sam, in all of the research that we've done watching games from the 85 season and, re- and reading articles and whatnot, was that Dave Corzine appeared to have been the, the whipping boy for Chicago Bulls fans, at least in the 85 season and maybe after that as well. Do you have any idea what the background was behind that criticism? Yes, I want to try to remember. I, I, I interviewed Dave for the book. And I was, oh, he was another oh, guy I hooked up with, and he he's, uh, works with the staff at DePaul now in, Beth, in Chicago. And so I see him around occasionally and um, doesn't come to many Bulls games. When he was traded to the Bulls, 
he was traded for, I think it was Artis Gilmore. And so Gilmore was, if I remember it right, I mean, obviously, I mean, I remember Gilmore, who was, you know, he's in the Hall of Fame, yep. tremendously popular. You know, it's the sort of, it's sort of the reverse uh, racism. You know, Gilmore is the black player. He's, he's much more popular and effective. And a white center comes in. They also got a Mark Oberding in that trade, another, you know, white forward, but they're clumsy and slow. And so, you know, the Bulls had a couple of good years. They finally... They had a great team in the early 70s. It went down, and then they got Gilmore out of the ABA, uh, and they had a couple of good years. They they probably gave Portland its toughest series in 77 when they won the title. They lost in the what was the miniseries and three games. And then they had a great uh, playoffs in 81, beat the Knicks in the first round uh, with Jerry Sloan as coach, and Gilmore had become a really popular player, and now he's traded for Corzine. They didn't do anything as a player, Always a very mild-mannered, pleasant guy, and an effective player, good outside shooter. You know, played a high post player, wasn't it? But you know, nowhere near the talent of Gilmore, who I think made four All-Star teams in the six years he was with the Bulls. And so the you know the community just simply turned on on Dave for not for not being Artis Gilmore. Yeah, that's that's it's pretty harsh. Unfortunate, just due to circumstance. But like when I researched for the previous episode of this series, we uh, discussed that Corzine only missed eighteen regular season games in his seven seasons with the Bulls. We couldn't really understand the the reasoning behind the crowd being on his back the whole time, but that's obviously a clear indication of why. He remembers it to this day, you know, and uh, you know it was tough on him. I mean, it was really unpleasant, and it, you know, he, didn't, he didn't show it. You know, you can't fight City Hall as a cliche, or can't fight the public. It was hard for him, but he stuck with you know with that team a long time. He got he got almost you know when they uh, started making their move in the late '80s. He was integral to uh, Jordan's success in a lot of ways because by playing a center, an outside center, you know if Artis Gilmore was with the Bulls, Jordan, I mean, he still wasn't great, but he wouldn't have had all that room in the lane because you know big centers. That's why Kobe had to defer to Shaq for so long because you can't go inside because the center they're going to throw the ball to the center. But when they traded Gilmore for Corzine, and that was before Kraus came and before Reinsdorf took over, you know, you cleared out the middle. So when Jordan came in, uh, the middle was open to drive all the time, and, and, and that's really where he made his reputation doing that. So, you know, in a way, the creation of Jordan was in part due to the way Dave Corzine played. Fans didn't look at it that, <laughs> that way, but, you know. No, they didn't. That's uh, eloquently said as well. Yeah, just a few more quick questions, and if you don't mind, it's been great to have this chance to chat with you. Um, sure. I want to ask a question about Kevin Lockery. He was fired in May of 1985. As you mentioned earlier, the Bulls were plus 11 in the wins column from the previous season that he coached as well, and they got to the first round of those playoffs in 85. Was he unlucky to be sent packing from the Bulls, or do you think that uh, he was never really going to be a long-term solution there in Chicago? Um. He really got Jordan going the right way, and Jordan never forgot. Jordan always appreciated Kevin because Kevin, Kevin was always a coach, and he coached Dr. J uh, in the ABA when they won the title with the Nets. And Kevin was o- always sort of the you know, old-style NBA coach. And if you got a great player, you know, give him the ball and clear out and let him play. You know, he did that for uh, Dr. J in the ABA. You know, Julius had his greatest seasons then. And you know, he identified Michael right away, gave him the ball. And, um, and I remember Michael saying many times after that, many years, he said, I never would have had the success I did if not for Kevin Lockery because, yeah. you know, I remember talking with him about it. He said confidence 
is as important as anything. And he said, and I didn't know when I got there how good I was or how good I could be. And he said Kevin gave him the confidence to allow his talents to come out. Once ownership changes, management changes, it's inevitable that there'll be a change. And something happened late that season. Kevin uh, wasn't, it wasn't doing something for the lottery, but there was some manipulation in the game that season. I'm not for gamblers or anything. And they were faulting Kevin for it. So there's, I know he got into it with, uh, with management later in the season. And, and he, knew, he knew he wasn't going to survive once Rod Thorne wasn't there anyway. Yeah, okay, very interesting. Uh, Aaron, I might hand it over to you at this point. And that 28.2 points per game average that he had in his rookie season, it definitely showed the fact that Kevin handed the keys to Michael. Yeah, and I tell some of the stories of that rookie season. It was interesting. You know, the first game, Michael you know, was very pedestrian. He had 16 points, and you know, Woolrich and Daly both had much bigger games, and, and Michael was a facilitator a lot of that game. Uh, had one you know, one sort of great move with the tongue and the stretched out and everything, but, you know, mostly was controlled. And also, I remember Washington was double-teaming him that game, and he was, he was the only one they were double-teaming. So, you know, because there was a lot of build-up in it. And the next game, they went up to Milwaukee, and he, he had a chance right at the end of the game to win the game and shoots an air ball. And that was the confidence. He came back, then they played Milwaukee again at home the game after that and won the game, had like some 20-point quarter or something drives them back and I remember Don Nelson saying at the time and they were known as a great defensive team they had uh, uh, Sidney Moncrief Paul Pressy they had the best wing defenders or shooting guard small forward defenders in the league and Nelson was a defensive oriented coach back then and hard to believe the way he came in Golden State and he said you know we we put all of them on him and he said you know not not one of them could guard him and these were the best defensive players in the league these are guys who were winning defensive player of the year Moncrief had and jordan had like 19 or 20 points in the quarter and rallied the bulls to win and so it showed right away a couple of things not only what he could do but the confidence to come back from shooting an air ball with a chance to win the game to coming back dominating the very next game one thing that we've seen a lot of in the video footage from the 85 season is a lot of empty seats at Chicago Stadium. What was the atmosphere like? Well, it was interesting. Tremendous uh, anticipation uh, just because the potential of a star. But nobody quite knew for sure. You know, you know terrific in the Olympics, but it averaged 17 points in, um, in college. You know, hit that great shot to win the NCAA tournament as a freshman. But then his last game, his last game as a, as a junior before he went pro, uh, he had a poor game. They lost, and Dan Dockich from Indiana, you know, was credited sort of with shutting him down or something. And so I remember you know, talking with the uh, Philadelphia guys who were trying to, Dean Smith, because Billy Cunningham was the GM there, Dean Smith is pushing Philadelphia to move up in the draft to get Jordan. And, and I remember the Philadelphia guys saying, well, he couldn't be better than Andrew Tony." You know, because Andrew Tony was the elite shooting guard of the era, you know, 6'5", great shooter, great scorer, you know, champion in the finals in 83. Well, we need to send a shooting guard for <laughs> And um, so there was buildup, but they weren't selling out. Actually, the biggest crowds that year were when Boston came in with Bird or, or you know, L.A. came in with Magic. And so, so the fans, while they were, you know, interested in Jordan and th- thought something was going on, there were only like a handful of sellouts that year. Most of the, you know, the home crowd attendance was okay. There were half-filled, you know, nights where it was half-filled. Still a losing team. 
you know, it was another one of those things like, oh, well, we've heard this before, you know, it was Orlando Woolworths was going to be a star, and Quentin Daly was going to be a star, and, <laughs> you know, we've had a lot of this stuff before, and so it was a little bit of the show me, and, and as it began to build, you know, it started to grow. Just to wrap things up, Sam, I've got a listener-submitted question that we've received from a guy who's using the alias Johnny Kilroy, which is uh, <laughs> Nike's fictional character that um, resembled MJ for the Air Jordan Nine shoe release. Yeah, I think it was a world. It was a reference to a World War Two character. Kilroy was here. Nike just stole that from the old World War Two cartoon. I'm glad that you've enlightened me because I had no idea. To be honest, I thought it was to do with the Air Jordan Nines. And yeah. Johnny, inverted commas, asks. Uh, about his concerns about the lack of video footage from Jordan's rookie season. And he says, why do you think that to date the NBA has yet to release anything new to celebrate the 30-year milestone? Are you aware of anything that the NBA may be planning in terms of at least video footage that's never before seen? Uh, not really. I, I, you know, I don't know how much there is. Back then, I mean, even though Magic and Bird is coming and you know, the league is starting to grow, and it wasn't quite a barnstorming league, but it was very early in the growth. I mean, you know, we're traveling back then, you know, we're staying in very modest motels. I don't know if you know the brand names, Holiday Inn. Mm-hmm. You know, teams, actually, I remember the games up in Milwaukee sometimes, the teams after the game would go to the bar across the street. Both teams would be in there together just hanging out. I mean, there was no entourages. And so the, the league wasn't at the technological level that it would become in a sophisticated level and so i don't know how much film i don't know how much uh, there is my guess is there's not a whole lot even for just 30 years ago um i just don't think there's all that much that exists well it's a good point and i know that um within the trading community and that's where i've obtained some of the dvds that we've been able to watch for this particular podcast series we're chatting about less than one-third of Jordan's rookie games have actually appeared on DVD. So it really just relied on people recording games on their VHS back in the day and hopefully keeping them to have them transferred digitally down the track. So, yeah, it's few and far between. We always taped over that stuff. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. Couldn't afford to buy more. (laughs) (laughs) True. Uh, Aaron, is there anything further you'd like to ask before we let Sam go? Just as I mentioned before, Sam, very, very appreciative of your work, mate. Um, it all started uh, for me, of course, with the other Jordan rules, which released not long after I first started becoming interested in the NBA. And hopefully you're okay with me saying to you that it's a bit of a, a Bible for me and I'm sure for a lot of other NBA and Chicago Bulls fans. So um, I just wanted to express my appreciation. And next February, I'm going to be in Chicago for a fortnight to come and watch a seven-game homestand uh, for the Bulls. So if I get an opportunity to either come down around Prestro, I'll, uh, I'll come past and say hi. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you know, I'll count on you doing that. I appreciate you saying that, and, and uh, I certainly appreciate your guys' work you know, with your podcast and the Bulls. And, and, I, and I think you know, with this book, you know, there is no next. I, I think your audience will really find it. You know, because people are interested in that era of the Bulls. That's really what I tried to capture, who Jordan was at that time not the one that became so familiar. And not that I overlooked it. I talked about those years too. But like you said, and like we talked about, there isn't much video evidence from there. There's, you know, you know the, the memories fade as well. And, you know, that's why I wanted to go back and talk to all these guys who were there then and what they experienced and what they went through. And, and that's why I wanted to have it as a, a lot oral history. So it could be in their words and, 
fans could hear it from the people, you know, who were there and, and uh, were most intimate with, you know, the beginning of this, you know, amazing, amazing player. My copy of There Is No Next is actually in the air at the moment as we speak on the way over from Amazon. And, uh, yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to getting my hands on it, mate. So, again, thank you very much for your time. All right, fellas. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks very much, Sam. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, and it's certainly whet the appetite for your book, and we'll certainly include all the links to that in the show notes to this episode. So once again, thanks for chatting to us, and hopefully we'll have you on again in the future. Great. Yeah, I appreciate that. All right. Thanks, Sam. Up giddy. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at InAllAnnis. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash InAllAnnis. Join me next time for another edition of the show.